0: taking the journey of healing and reclaiming the self you
1: are meant to be. My name is Andrea and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy, my dear, dear shit shows! For any new listeners, my name is Andrea. I am a total shitshow. I am an adult child, and this podcast is the result of many, many, many years in a shitload of pain in toxic romantic relationships, having no idea what the hell was wrong with me, becoming convinced that I was inherently flawed and unfixable, I then learned that that was not the case and that I was an adult child. And that realization was huge. One of the biggest blessings that I've received. So I apologize for the daylight episode. However, I'm gonna make it up to y'all. Uh, you are in for a real damn treat. Today, we are diving deep with Returning guest, Tian Dayton, who is the, the, the queen of adult children. She is the adult child guru, pioneer. This woman has spent the last 29 plus years dedicating her life to figuring out how the hell to help us shit shows. And she has had such a, an instrumental part in my journey. And it was through reading her book, The Ace Trauma Syndrome that I learned that what I was experiencing in dating was complex PTSD. And that was one of the most pivotal aha moments that I, I ever had. I highly recommend you go listen to the two other episodes where she's been on. I'll include them in the show notes. Uh, but today we're just talking about a whole bunch of shit, we're talking some about her, we're talking about psychodrama. It is a nice adult child um, potpourri for you, okay? So she just re-released her adult child workbook. It came out about, I don't know, a year and a half ago, but then she had to make some edits and, um, and reprint it. So the revised workbook is now available for purchase. Uh, I will include that in the show notes as well. And if, if you have not read the ACUA trauma syndrome or uh, emotional sobriety, those are in my opinion, in the top five books that every adult child should read. So I will also include those in the, the show notes. So let's just get the damn show on the road, okay? But first, let's talk about why you, yes, you, need to damn the join shit show. This is where I host virtual support groups this is a place where you can connect with people who who won't judge you, who will completely accept you, and who will totally understand you in ways that you've never felt before. So any of y'all out there who have been listening to the podcast for a long time uh, and have been wanting to join and haven't, I want you to ask yourself why. What is the resistance in in joining this okay so i'm just gonna pose that question to y'all some food for thought next give me a little follow on the insta on the tiktok at adult child pod and last but not least give me a damn five star rating on apple on spotify this is required folks
0: all right folks she's back the queen the adult child queen miss Dion dayton how you doing Fine. Thanks. How about you? It's good to see you again.
2: What have you been doing? No, I've been busy with a lot of things. So let me tell you, I've been doing a lot of work with psychodrama. I have developed a certificate on relational trauma repair sociometrics, which is my kind of brand of psychodrama. And and, uh, it's not my brand of psychodrama because I'm very classical in the way I work, but I have adapted... Simple psychodrama and sociometry for an easier way to treat uh, addiction, adult relational trauma, obviously ACAs, uh, and anyone who's grown up with you know severe enough dysfunction so that it's playing itself out as adults.
0: Yeah, I've been looking at um, I've got both of them, but I've been looking at the the relational trauma book that you just had come out but that's i mean more so focused for for um clinicians and practitioners but still super interesting the treating adult children of relational trauma the 85
2: actually that was interesting because i um pessy approached me to do that workbook and it's it was so in my wheelhouse who did Pessy is one of the biggest publishers in the mental health field oh. and they they they're now starting to publish books they have the family networker magazine they have conferences around the United States they do trainings they they're they have a very huge um online and in-person presence and because it, it this is this is the subject obviously as you know that touches my heart so to talk about this in terms of how to treat it is what I do anyway. And the, I did a day long training with them and the, the 26,000 people signed up for it. Wow. So I know it's, I mean, they have a big network for sure, but it's, it's also just this resurgence since um, Bessel van der Kolk's book and So many other people, Steve Porges, you know, writing on trauma, Gabriel Mate. And frankly, because I think the state of our country and COVID are traumatizing for people so that Mm -hmm. there's just a lot going on in the world right now that makes people want to seek answers.
0: So I just celebrated a 15 years sober last week. Well done.
2: Congratulations.
0: It's a long time. Yeah. um but not long enough and it's just really interesting to me reflecting on how my view of addiction my addiction my alcoholism has changed so much from when i first got sober and you know i always knew that alcohol was just a symptom but now i view my alcoholism as just a symptom and so I'm just curious what like what are your what are your thoughts on that? Do you believe that addiction is always trauma-based?
2: Well, you know, here's the deal. You know, if you're a trained psychologist, you're trained never to say always, right? Always yeah, okay. You always say
0: you know what I mean. Before. But a lot well, most I, well, of the time. But well,
2: here's what I'm saying. <laughs> the reason I'm winding up in this way is because it is it is who who gets addicted who doesn't have childhood trauma, basically, or other kinds of trauma, war trauma. I mean, that who wants to drown out their inner world and numb their emotions? There are a couple ways people get into that. One is to calm existing trauma. And another, as we saw with OxyContin, is to manage pain, right? Mm-hmm, and then it mm-hmm. to addiction. But I'm right with you on why do you... I I see it as a symptom too. I see addiction as a symptom of unresolved relational trauma or trauma of any kind.
0: I just think about all the years that I sat in AA meetings um, and struggled in romantic relationships and nobody was able to point out to me like, oh, maybe because this is like a lot deeper than just what, you know, what the, what the, what the 12, at least the 12 steps in AA can can, um, can get to, cause I mean, the 12 steps saved my life. They're wonderful, but they're
2: not designed to heal trauma. You know, you know, I've always wanted to have a 12 step meeting called emotional sobriety. Mm-hmm. I think I probably said that to you before. It's a Bill Wilson term. Mm-hmm. It's where everybody needs to end up. It because I'm a huge fan of 12 step programs. They're so stabilizing and regulating and, Healing and everything, and they're they're also available all the time. uh However, you know the way you're thinking about this, it, you know, it's still kind of cutting edge, Andrea. I know I mean, it, it's not it's not a it, as unbelievable as that seems for someone like me whose life has been steeped in it, or someone like you who has been thinking about this for so many years and investigating it. It is remarkable that it's not everywhere. However, the trauma awareness now will help to change that.
0: Yeah. Whenever it's appropriate, I do try to bring it up in meetings because I just think like, gosh, I wish I had heard something like that before. Um, I started going to this one meeting. It's fairly interesting. Have you seen that there's, um, I guess it's through Al-Anon, but they, they have the traditions written to where they're applied to a relationship. Have you seen that? No. So basically they're like reworded in a, in a sense, but it's basically applying the 12 traditions to like, if like to a relationship rather than to the program. And it's a double winner's meeting and it's actually, it's really powerful. So that's great. Mm -hmm. I I think that a lot of people don't stay sober because they never get to those like deeper rooted issues.
2: I would agree. I it's uh you know, most of therapy is really just Learning to tolerate
3: disintegrating
2: mm. inner states. That's whatever kind of therapy you're in, whether it's 12 step, EMDR, talk therapy, analysis, you know, IFS, anything. It's um, CBT, DBT. You're learning to tolerate what feel like intolerable inner states. And that's sort of step number one, but then um, being able to tolerate them in the presence of another person who's also tolerating their own inner states, and maybe both of you projecting your, what's the most intolerable at each other and making it about each other. That's the, uh, that, that's the grenade that goes off in the middle of relationships.
0: When you reflect back, cause when did you, when did you write the, the, the ACOA trauma syndrome?
2: Uh, golly a good question early 2000s yeah that sounds right very probably yeah
0: has there been anything that you've significantly changed your like view on since writing that like has there been since you've been really focused on you know the adult child syndrome and relational trauma has there been anything in particular that like you've really shifted your viewpoint on what do you what are you thinking? I don't I don't know I'm just I'm just asking um, just see things
2: differently or I don't you know. know I mean I think I haven't read it in a long time, so I could be wrong, but i I think I would write a lighter book today, right? I think I would write a book that was more I can't remember it well enough, so I know so what damn you're, good. Oh, I'm glad if you think so. I was always worried that people would find it too heavy, but if you can read it, you know, how do you make this lighter? Yeah, I know.
0: How do you make it? You, what are you talking? Yeah. I don't know how we make it. Yeah. It's just a yeah. nice, easy beach read. <laughs> I,
2: know. I know. I know. I don't you're know right. what that would sound like. <laughs>
3: yeah.
2: You're right. yeah, you're right. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I'd have to look back at it, but and and what have I learned? You know, since then would be an easier question to answer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I have. Uh, here's the big sentence: it, it works if you work it. So work at your work. It. You know, I mean it. You can't think your way better. You can't, you know, go to a. a people want quick fixes. That's. Mm-hmm. People want to think a thought. They, they want to, therapists want it too. They want to take a training and say, oh, okay, great. I'll go out and apply all of these skills. Everybody's calling them now. But until you can be with yourself and be with your client and tolerate what comes up within yourself and within that client relationship, then what good are you doing them? If you're using skills and fixes to kind of tamp down what's coming up in them, then they'd be better off. Uh, talking to a friend you know if you on the other hand if you only let somebody unload and talk and blame Mm -hmm. you know that's not good either so i i think there if i've changed in any way it's just to become more rigorous and self-reflective and take responsibility for what's going on inside of you and just withdraw your projection you know the way the buddhists talk about you know that if you're if you're projecting some, i have a good personal story should i share it duh so i was just at my daughter's uh the other day and she is they they've moved to the well anyway i i was thinking i had these thoughts going through my mind and i thought what am i what are these thoughts doing in my mind right now this isn't doing mm. any any good and then I remembered my my big discovery in the grief book is age correspondence reaction. Mm, mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm.
2: So that's, that's one of my go-tos in terms of what's going on. Can you explain
0: that for people?
2: Yeah. An age correspondence reaction is when uh, something in your child's life or anyone's life, but it shows up with kids so much, when something in your child's life is triggering something that went on that was difficult for you from your own life at that Mm -hmm. same age. In other words, Mm -hmm. if your child turning six triggers the six-year-old inside of you who's still shut down, frozen, then you tend to shout or tamp down your child because the little one in you can't stand the intensity. Well, so when I went to an age correspondence reaction, I thought, no, that's not what's going on here because my was it bringing
0: had, up when you were a mom, like when she was that it age?
2: Was, it, it, I thought it was, but then I coined a new term, stage correspondent reaction. It wasn't okay. the age because I started having children younger. So we were at different okay. stages, but the stage they're at in their parenting was triggering something inside of me from a stage that was difficult for me and my own family, you know, with my uh, that when my husband and i were having a hard time just being normal or two AC ways, we've had a long uh-huh. trip together. Yeah. Um, and then as soon but as soon as I saw that it went away. Mm. And I had the most fun time with my grandchildren, with the you know with the with the day. So that's how powerful this unconscious projection can be. And that happens that is the of everything I think you've gotten me to answer your good question Mm -hmm. that's I don't know how much that's what I've come to a very secure place with that this that reaching that this shit
0: never ends (laughs) well
2: that it gets triggered and that if you that it does end but that in order Mm -hmm. for it to end you really have to just sit with what's being triggered inside of you and own it as your own. And that feels like you might be jumping off a cliff at that very moment, because it doesn't feel like your own, it feels absolutely like it's about what's triggering it. But until you can separate the past from the present, you, you're stuck in that,
3: you're stuck. <laughs> you're yeah, <screwed. laughs>
2: once you Because you're just you're cycling around making the external reasons for the internal, right? I'm this way because of this, because you did that, I did this. Mm -hmm. So while some of that may be true, if it's an intense overreaction, very likely a good 60% of it has its origin inside of you. As we say in Al-Anon, for every finger you've got pointed towards somebody you have three pointing toward yourself. That's the quickest road to freedom, I think. It's just using life and what triggers you and relationships. As a path to healing, and it is a risky business because it makes you feel vulnerable and at risk, and you know, little, all that stuff. But it, it was—I I don't often have an experience that's that clear. Mm. I mean, it was like the waters parted the moment I could identify that. Mm-hmm. And by the way, that's how it heals. What? Um, I think it's so
0: the first few times that you're able to have the the awareness of what's going on like the kind of the witnessing of of the trauma response Mm -hmm. and then the part of you like yeah the part of you that just feels like you're you're gonna die and then the part of you knows that you're actually not reacting you're reacting to the past and and to not the present like the first few times that that like you're able to kind of sit in that is just it's really
2: mind-blowing you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm way up there. I'm 73 and I'm still mind blown.
0: What were your most, um, like intense emotional flashbacks about like when you were like prior to really starting your healing journey?
2: Gosh, that's a good question. I love the term emotional flashbacks. Flashbacks. I think that's, the worst uh, thing in the whole world. It's like yeah, and that's what we ever. have. In ACAs, right? We have emotional flashbacks. We don't have necessary. I mean, emotional flashbacks. I think. I think there. I mean, I, I was a young child, the youngest of four, in a house with a lot of joy, a lot of cleverness, a lot of social fun. And a lot of dysfunction and intense denial, and uh, gaslighting, like like it was going out of style. So there was <laughs> rage. there was just rage. And when I have an emotional flashback, it is uh, maybe sometimes this frozenness that happens inside of me being around rage, right? Mm. Uh, even though I can ostensibly tolerate it, I'm a therapist. I do psychodrama. I can obviously tolerate it, but there is nonetheless. Um, a, it's it's as if a darkness enters the room for me. It's as if it's as if the room changes colors. Mm. So that's one. I, there are all kinds, I suppose.
0: What about like limiting core beliefs? What do you think was the strongest there for
2: you? For me, a limiting core belief: women are supposed to be. Um, always giving, um, Mm. not want for themselves and not too aggressive. I think I grew up in the 50s and that was both wonderful and limiting. It was limiting in that women really weren't supposed to have any roles other than caretaking roles. And You know, we could excel socially just some, enough to be of of good use to our husbands and our families. But, you know, uh, the reason it was liberating is because there were no expectations of me. Mm. No one expected Mm -hmm. women to be all that smart or all that um, uh, successful. Mm Mm-hmm. So I could sort of slip along without having many expectations for myself. I didn't feel a lot of pressure.
0: So your, your dad was the alcoholic.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Was there a point where you realized, oh, my mom impacted me quite a lot more than I thought she did?
2: <laughs> Funny you should ask. <laughs> you know, like last month. I mean, yeah, no, there was I think that's part of what started me on this journey. I always knew my dad impacted me. We always blamed dad for the alcoholism. And um, we pointed- He never
0: at- got, he never maintained sobriety, right? Like yeah. I know he went to treatment, but then he lost and then, yeah. And then he died, right? Pretty dad, he
2: died, but dad was an episodic drinker. He was
0: what we Okay,
3: a okay. Mm-hmm.
2: So I've got my dad back all, all throughout my life for mm. pieces of time, but they weren't long pieces and they were always- um, I remember one time when dad and I were out for lunch, he was in Florida and um, it it just felt so good to have him back. I was a young adult, you know, maybe he died when I was 23. I suppose I was Mm. 22 and we were just having, you know, just the best time. We were very close and he was there as himself. And he, we were ordering and they said, would you like a drink? And I could, you know, suddenly that feeling came over me. Mm. He put the scotch, and I just said, "Oh, Dad, goodbye, Dad. Don't do this, Dad. Please, don't do." You know, sometimes I had the strength to say, "Don't do that, Dad." Other times, I I just was caught unaware. We were so happy, mm-hmm. and he picked up the drink and he looked at me and he said, "Tiana, promise me you will never do this. Look at me. I started and now I can't stop. Promise me." Mm. and that's the way it was with my dad he just came in and out all the way till the last second so my mom was so very you know she walked into that relationship with trauma but she was also um you know 19 years younger she was oh wow very greek i didn't realize that okay my, my father saw her picture in a Greek newspaper in America, the Ahepa <laughs> newspaper and thought she was beautiful and drove to Minnesota and met her father and set it up. That's
0: 19
2: it years, was. wow. <laughs> um, So she was loaded with, you know, she had a lot of trauma with dad and she walked in with trauma and she was also very successful, but my mother was the seriousness of my mother's denial and gaslighting Mm. it was pathological she was also pretty narcissistic and narcissism and I think narcissism and alcohol addiction often go together I I think sometimes people I I I will be I feel like I'm going to be shot for saying this but (laughs) let's hear it (laughs) drink because they can't it's it's impossible to live with a narcissist right that's how it's I feel like with
3: my mom. very painful.
2: Yeah, it's impossible. You will do nothing but feel like, you know, mincemeat all the time and mm. discourage it when you don't do exactly what you're supposed to do for them, not for you. And, you know, it's a very, so I, I really watched my father try to drink to manage my mother's sort of histrionic mm. narcissism, alternating with, you know, most fun person on the block, you know. She was loads of fun, but she—you had to do it her way. While she was telling you, she was—you didn't have to. You were free to do whatever you wanted. It was so confusing. So, and so
0: then, how did you see that impact? What was the impact that you feel like your mother had on you?
2: I mean, hard to say with a mother because it's so everyday. And
3: mm-hmm. she
2: was a, she was a gutsy, uh kind of brilliant lady, and so she was. She was a great model in terms of she loved the world. She loved people. That was wonderful. Um, She was fun to talk to, but you had with mom to be her minion. Mm. And I was not really anyone's minion. And I had a very solid sense of myself, oddly enough, from my alcoholic father, who gave me a very bonded sense before his drinking got so bad. But mom didn't want that. Mom wanted uh children who uh reflected within her light. Mm. And she while she was telling you you should be an individual and then think your own thoughts, underneath it, you had to do it your way. And if you didn't, you became an enigma to her and something to, Mm. to dismantle. So I think my mother. Uh was busy dismantling me, and that was a lifelong struggle. You were the only girl no I had a, I, we had a a brother, two girls, and me, and a little girl who died between my two sisters. Mm. so but my my older sister was sort of our family beauty and mom's uh best Cave. friend. yeah, so that role was full.
0: Yeah. I was going to ask, how do you feel like your experiences were different?
2: Among my sisters?
0: Yeah. And your brother.
2: And my brother. My brother was uh, a little bit remote. He was, you know, we were Greek. So he was the kind of the man of the family. We brought him milk and chocolate cake that we made, you know, we, so we just sort of deferred to my brother and he's, I mean, He's, he's an interesting guy and a smart, fun guy. But we, that was kind of, and he was also eight years older than I was. So I was his little, little sister. Kootsie, um, my my other sister, I hope she doesn't mind if I use her name, was... Uh, Cootsie? that's so cute. She was, she was wonderful. She's a wonderful older sister. And, uh, you know, kind, really... It, my mom kind of passed each of us down to one of the siblings and Cootsie kind of got me. And I, I was very lucky because she was a really sweet sister. But I think she would say that she felt like she disappeared in mom's presence. I would say that I felt like I was mom's constant conflictor. And uh, yeah, something like that.
0: And did any of them find adult child recovery later all on? Of all, all of them. Yeah.
2: Yeah. it's beautiful. Yeah. Did any of them struggle with um, alcoholism uh, themselves? No, we have no. I mean, our dad was so seriously alcoholic. I think we all just can't even inhale scotch or, you know, I don't know, for some reason. And mom, mom pulled the cover back on dad's alcoholism when we were young. So she went to Al-Anon, she pointed the direction of healing, all of that. So I think that kept us from having to fall down that if, if something's not a secret anymore, it really helps.
0: Yeah. You know, for us, it was like, it wasn't a secret
2: to me, but it was a secret to the rest of the world. Yeah. You know, we had a lot of sexual abuse in our family. That was a secret. Mm. And that never, and that did lead to complications. I think that's the secret in our family. And I think, I, I think this is maybe the first time I've said that in public. Really? Maybe you're a good interviewer.
0: Hell yeah.
3: Got, and- got, I got, got him. <laughs> Do you know, what's
0: his, fa- um, what's his name? Um, Bill Moyers, you know, William Moyers yeah. from, Yeah. I got him to, t- I got him to talk about how he relapsed on like Oxycontin on the podcast. <laughs> oh, you mean William? Yeah yeah. Son. yeah. yeah. Hope. Yeah. He's yeah. Like, I've never shared that. I'm like, okay. Really? <laughs> 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 like, yeah. yeah. Give me the headline, baby. <laughs> <laughs> um. Huh. That's so interesting. Was it mm-hmm. ever discussed
3: later yes, on?
2: But not, not very, um, because mm. it was so hidden.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, because it's, you know, sexual abuse is a, is a, well, literally creates strange bed- bedfalls. You know, I mean, it, it's so complicated. And so to discuss all the pain we were in as a family, mm-hmm. we would have had to really name it. I did drag our, I talk about this in the Adult Children of Alcoholics Workbook. That is the whole, I, I did rewrite that a little bit. Um, but I, I talk about dragging my family into therapy mm. three times. So mm. I was always dragging my family into therapy and we could talk about it sort of then, but it was very, it was very freeing for me, but less useful in getting us to be able to sit and talk together. That takes a long time and you have to keep going You have to keep at it or the professionals have to be really good, even though I think we did work with good professionals. Very good.
0: Well, I would think, I mean, I think probably the vast majority of people listening right now, the thought of, of going to family therapy would probably actually
2: be like a horrible idea, (laughs) you know, no kidding. Most. Yeah. I'm surprised my family even would do it, Uh huh. but we really loved each other and we really identified as a family. Not that that's, Mm -hmm. not that people who, not that everybody doesn't really love each other, but, and my mom remarried and she remarried a pretty enlightened guy who thought this kind of thing was a good idea. One thing that I
0: talk about with, with a friend of mine is that, you know, in my family, and it's similar to yours, but it wasn't all bad. It was mostly good. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a lot of really, really happy times and fun times. And my mom, who was the alcoholic, I mean, she was such a, she was a wonderful mom, you know, 90% of the time.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and just to see the progression of her
2: alcoholism, you know, and I something out that little yeah. cat in your throat. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's oh, yeah. where it lives. That's where that pain lives. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to start. No, saying. not that at me, all. But, that, please. but it's so um, important for listeners to understand that this stuff lives in our body. Oh, absolutely. Um, but anyway, please. Well, I'm just going
0: to say that like to, to see, to to watch her disease progress and to, to really like lose my mom, you know, like she's not the same person that she once was and how, how, how painful that is compared to other people that are in, you know, in my community who their parents were always shit, like their parents were always horrible to them, you know, and to 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 have once experience like to, to have a mom where you really do feel so loved by them and, and to have that like close relationship and then to have that no longer be there is really hard than to have it never have been there to begin with, you know?
2: You know, Andrea, if I may, please. first of all, it's so touching just the way, I mean, I'm seeing you as you say this and you look so mm-hmm. lovely saying it um, and tender, you know what I mean? These things are so closely held. Um, but I think it's also a, I think it's a, a sign of your healing, that you can remember this. So can you talk about what was the unfolding process
0: in the you know the treatment modalities that you've found to be most successful like psychodrama and all of that like what was what was the process of re- realizing that experiential forms of therapy were crucial in treating
2: this condition? It was a happy accident for me. Um, we, I, I write this. Out well, to the, pause quickly,
0: let me say. So you went to the. We went to the, You found that. We read that book, and then you went to that like first convention in Orlando, right? Oh, that I forgot all about that. And then when what? The, but you weren't already in school. Like you hadn't gone to school to be a
2: therapist yet at that point, right? I had not. I, I okay. switched halfway. Okay. I I was thirty at that point, I think, and I was getting a master's. But I, I, I changed midway, and I wound up getting a master's with way too many credits. But I just had this new income. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so I, I, we moved to England, and I started. Oh, I think to- I knew that. Yeah, we we went to that convention. We went to that conference. Um, you know, my mother who I've just referred to, we were all 400 people in a big circle at the end singing, you know, something or another, I can't remember, some beautiful song. And my mother, literally, who was a real show person, came running across 400 people with her arms outstretched saying, and wrapped her arms around me and said, I'll never leave you again. Mm. And, and that night she ditched us for dinner. <laughs> so this <laughs> is my mother then we moved to london and i be, but because of all this learning at the conference and frankly this experience with my mother too i started getting interest interested in a deeper level of what made people tick so i took courses with um a protege of dw winnicott and he was he was the person who kind of originated attachment and lost thinking he's a a luminary in the field of attachment and loss and does does the original work and I had children at the same time so it was all started making sense so that's where I began the shift got back to New York and decided okay I need to do something about me signed up for a five-day ACOA or whatever you called it family week I guess it was called Hmm. at the Mm-hmm. with Sharon Wakeshider-Cruz, and it was psychodrama. And by the end of five days, I thought, I, I have to, I need this every day, and I want to do it for the rest of my life, for me. And I hope I help one person along the way, but this is where I need to be. So that's how that started. <clears throat> and then yep. I started to learn about psychodrama. I worked for Sharon, uh, at uh, who started on-site, I got training. I finished my master's. I did all of that stuff. And then I, by accident, bumped into psychodrama, hmm. completely by accident. My husband picked up a flyer in the mail and said, this is psycho and drama. That is everything you do. Cause I had also, been-
0: <laughs> you're a psycho and you're super dramatic
2: <laughs> exactly. well, I, And I've drama therapy. I'd been doing drama therapy, but he said, this sounds really interesting. And I, I left it in the pile. We had little kids. I ignored it. It worked you know, months later, it worked its way to the top of the pile. He picked it up again, and he said, this is tomorrow, and this is in New York. Why don't you take a look at this? This might be interesting for you. Wow! So both of my kids had a play date, and I don't think I'd have done it otherwise. Uh-huh. I, and when I found psychodrama done by the people who created it, Zerk, namely Zerka Moreno and the people trained by J.L. Moreno, there was no turning back for me. They corrected every bit of mistake that concerned me about experiential therapy. They were not catharsis, abreactive, driven. They didn't have goals. They just had this phenomenally silken method that, if you really learned how to do it, could that it was trauma informed from the beginning. It was. It's a brilliant method. It's just a lot of people don't know how to do it all that well. A lot of people do worldwide, know how to do it brilliantly. But in the addictions field, we were doing it clumsily. And so I I trained with Zerka and, and a man named Bob Soroka and then, you know, did everything, lived in psychodrama. Can you explain doctor.
0: what it is for listeners?
2: Psychodrama is the original role play method developed in turn of the century Vienna, the early uh, 1900s, late 18, early 19 by a man called Jacob Levy Moreno. He is the father of group therapy. He developed a triadic system called psychodrama, sociometry, group psychotherapy. Malcolm Gladwell just did a podcast naming him once again as an original social scientist. He created sociometry and sociometrics. And Zerka, his wife, he came to America in the 30s Met his wife here, who had also come from Europe, with her psychotic daughter during World War II.
3: I'm psychotic and, daughter during World war- I mean, psychotic <laughs> uh,
2: sister. I'm sorry, she had been given. I love charge- how you just throw that in. Well, she was. She was. She had been given charge as a young woman during a war, to to find help for her sister. I mean, wow, you know. Uh Zirka talks about the last thing she saw her father when the watertight doors closed. That was it. Mm. And
0: um You just casually threw that in with his yeah, sister.
2: Sorry, I heard, this, I heard Zirka talk about
0: this so no, many no, times. No, I love
2: it. Let's keep going. You know, but anyway, so then Zirka and and uh Moreno had this hospital <laughs> in Beacon. Zirka brought her sister to Moreno and they eventually um married and Zirka really then co-created what we do today as psychodrama. Marino invented it, but he was himself uh, pretty fast and loose in the way he did it and a little bit theatrical. Zerka turned it into a very refined form of therapy. And that is what I do. That is what my passion is. And that is what I want to, you know, really help people come back to because the training in psychodrama has become uh, less... Uh, classical, you know, people use things like scarves and they call it psychodrama, you know, circle would say, Absolutely, don't do that. You, just, you know, you depend on the techniques, you depend on the method, you depend on your, on your theory. What is, why does it work? Well, trauma is stored in the body, right? So if you are just trying, because of the how can I make that sound the easiest picture? If you're talking to a, an empty chair, Zirka is the person who invented the empty chair one moment during a, an enactment. Um, if you imagine that your say, mother, because that's a very close attachment figure mm-hmm. is sitting in that chair and somebody doesn't say now, Talk about your mother, what was she like? What da da da. da, da. So that can put you in your head, right? And you're mm-hmm. pretty much intellectual memory system. But they say instead, your mother's sitting in that chair. What do you want to say to her? Mm. Boom, Something happens inside of you. And what you either what you never got to say comes flooding out or the fear uh, against saying anything makes you feel frozen, right? But whatever happens, it's intense, it's related, and it is uh, shows us what was in that relational dynamic that may be being carried along mm. so that is a form of therapy that is embodied and experiential. and now I would say that the because of the br- way the brain stores uh experiences trauma the prefrontal cortex shuts down in a traumatic moment the thinking mm-hmm. mind shuts down and the limbic system where fight flight lives revs up suddenly you've got all this blood in your muscles you have energy to flee to fight mm-hmm. or you shut down and freeze mm-hmm. so but, but because your thinking mind is shut down you are not making sense of that moment in time so it lives within you It because is a bunch of sense memories the limbic system processes emotion and sense memories so you've got all the smells and the sights and the tastes and the sense of that that occurrence in your body but with no Mm storyline so then say this is um that's what triggers things like emotional memory
3: Mm -hmm.
2: if if say you were sexually abused, right? So that maybe is a lot of frozenness in your body and in your um, mind around certain sensations, just certain ones. So somebody touches you in that way and you, uh, you freeze up, but the frozen feelings want to have action so you might push somebody away or you might comply, but in any case, you won't be able to be yourself. Mm. Mm-hmm. And because that has never been made conscious, you don't know what's going on. You think mm-hmm. it's about the person stimulating it.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: A picture a fight between a, a two partners.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Your, um, your partner says something that, um, oh, here, I've got a perfect example from my own life. If Please. My um, mother-in-law was this very elegant, kind of chic, polite, also brilliant kind of woman who was so much fun to talk to, but when she was drunk- she turned I, into a psychopath. <laughs> would, well, she was a very measured psychopath, so she never lost it. Mm-hmm. She would just plant the losing it inside of you mm-hmm. and drive you nuts. For example, in the middle of the night, She would call my husband when he was a teenager, wake him up and talk to him about his father.
3: Mm. It's
2: it's been with it was with him all his life. But anyway, what if he hears, I I know how she sounded because I've heard her do it. And Mm
3: -hmm. and
2: it's it's this awful voice that cuts (laughs) through the night. And if I call him from another room in the house, it'll trigger him, freaks him out. Wow. It, not so much anymore, but it took us yeah. a while to figure out why that was. And meanwhile, it's not, not always convenient to go around every room and look for somebody. You know? <laughs> so it's, it's a conundrum.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But but the, it can be that little, the sound of the voice of the woman he loves now, mm. sounding like the woman he loved then. Mm. Uh Triggering so the attachment, the the love we have for each other, the attachment, gets in there. It might not if it might not affect him if it were somebody else shouting. He might just shout back or ignore them or whatever. But to hear that from me, his he layers onto it all of those nights, all of the drunkenness, all of the dashed hopes, all of the pain, and then he thinks I'm doing that somehow. That my calling him is a is an icky thing to do when I might just be wanting to say, what do you want for dinner? Or, you know, this kind of thing. I'm usually saying that, but that's how that happens. And until he can make that conscious and remember how horrible that was for him. Mm. uh, It just keeps getting layered.
0: When did you guys make the connection that you're both children of alcoholics?
2: Oh, from the, you know, okay. from day one. We've known each other since we were children. So
0: oh, okay,
2: we've always known about alcoholism in each other's families. But this was something that felt comfortable to both of us. Like we didn't have to explain the, the bizarreness of our growing up to each other.
0: And then she she played a big role because she was the one when she... She was driving you crazy that one trip, and then you left
2: in the snow with yes. your baby, right? And then that's when you read the book when you got home, right? The Ver- yep, Vern Johnson's book. I'll quit tomorrow. I mean, this was before there was a word like ACOA. Before yeah. what? This is still when we thought uh, we were supposed to be fine. The alcoholic yeah. was dead. Now we were supposed yeah. to be fine, mm. or we're out of the house. You know, we're very body centered. We think if our body gets out of the house, the rest of us. Mm. And that doesn't work that way. Mm-mm.
0: Why is psychodrama so effective when it's in a group? Well, first of all,
2: <laughs> just a group is effective, which you know yeah. from twelve-step programs and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a there is a limbic energy that gets going within a group that's profound and that's very real. Uh, it's called limbic resonance. You're you start to regulate each other, right? But we are, Moreno said, um, by a group we were wounded, by a group we shall be healed. Um, It's a beautiful statement. So that simply being in a group starts to trigger stuff for people. Mm. You know, you you start to, if you were, if you look around, if you're a therapist and you look around the room, there'll be one person trying to take over, there'll be one person kind of hiding out and, and being shy, there'll be one person who feels pretty regular. They'll be, they, people start to live out their role, oftentimes within the family system, which they carry throughout their lives. That's another Moreno concept, your sociometry, your social atom, which is the, how he, he, he diagrams the social relationships, you carry around the same status you had in your family and you keep recreating that it's why therapy is so important.
3: Mm. It's why mm-hmm. child
2: rearing is so important. Um, So, so group itself is healing. And then if you add the potential for role play, then you really have a way of getting people up out of their chairs and interacting with each other and creating scenarios that then everybody can identify with. It's not Mm -hmm. just anymore talking about, it's this talking to, we referred to earlier and you have the sensation of seeing your own life flash across your face. It's unbelievable sometimes. And and it's so real. What about for
0: people who don't have a lot of memories, like at all, like there's so many people who have very few childhood memories. (laughs) What do you think about psychodrama for that? Like if they're coming in and they really they really don't remember much at all. I mean, I'm sure it's bringing stuff up, but could that potentially be risky or?
2: Yes. yeah. I mean, however, healing is risky. Yeah. yeah. And you know, watching a movie is risky. So, uh, you know what I've been thinking about lately is just, I've got so many videos on YouTube and one, I was showing a, a friend, Leonard, uh, Buchel, who does this real recovery film festival, um, sometimes shows my shorts of psychodramas. So this was like an 11 minute film of somebody doing letter writing. And we were in New York in the Angelica Theater downtown and somebody after that, who had just gotten out of treatment because a whole bus from Oasis came and watched that film, leaned over and said, I got a letter I wrote during treatment. And Leonard and I looked at each other and said, well, shall we just let her do this? And Leonard said, yeah. So right beneath the film, we put two chairs and she read her letter to an empty chair. And then the group, by the combination of watching the film of somebody doing that with me directing psychodrama, then watching the actual enactment on stage, again, I was directing that, but another therapist could easily have been. I think that's a way. I think that could be a way to do therapy with the kind of population you're talking about or populations where the therapists have less training or populations where um, there is less money available for training. Why can't we do therapeutic films
3: Mm. and then Mm. people
2: write letters and then talk about that, right? Read them to each other, that kind of thing. I think if, I think there would be a way to integrate film into therapy that would be efficient and also a slower warm up so that somebody who might be more intimidated by directly being that close to a big psychodrama might have a sort of a stepped down way of entering it.
0: Yeah, what do people do who like don't have a shitload of money to go to therapy? Like how do people work on this
2: stuff? You know, that's why I did this workbook. That is ex- mm-hmm. and, and here's the other thing I'm thinking about doing. i um, curious as to what you think. When I, I had an experience recently, um, and I, you know, I know when I want to learn something, whether it's how to edit a film
3: mm-hmm. or
2: how to deal with a certain kind of trauma or how to, I go to YouTube, right? Mm-hmm. And it used to be that it was all practical stuff on YouTube. But now there's all kinds of stuff. And right now there's there are more people doing sort of 10 minute, 12 minute, I, you know, highly sophisticated talks mm-hmm. on various forms of therapy. I mm-hmm. mean, these are people who are, you know, have doctorates and they know what they're talking about. And they're not just giving out bad advice. They're giving out good thoughts. Mm-hmm. And I think there's more room for that. I want to do it with psychodrama training. And maybe talking about all kinds of subjects, therapy related. But um, I think that is, so I think if if you don't have much money, say you do a 12-step program, you have 10-minute films you can watch, you have workbooks you can do. I think you could get a lot done without spending a penny.
3: Mm. And
2: that there's no reason to sit still and not learn mm. because mm-hmm. uh, we have to come up with something. And there are, there's a lot of peer kind of thing going on right now. I think 12 step programs, I like them because they're, they are leaderless mm-hmm. so that you don't have a crummy leader telling you stuff. You know, I'd rather be leaderless than have an inadequate leader.
0: Yes. You know, the thing, though, with ACA and what I've noticed and part of why I started my community is like, you know, in AA, there is the ability to laugh at our shit. And there is a much more of a heaviness of a
2: doom and gloom in a lot of ACA meetings. Well, that's what I found. And I, apparently it hasn't changed. That's mm-hmm. why I prefer it. Allen mm-hmm. Um, OK, so. What did you start? Because well, I-,
0: I do it through my community, like through my podcast. So I have a, it's online and I host three, I do four Zoom groups a week. And it's just like we, it's like an ACA meeting, but with a personality, <laughs> you know, it's just the ability to like have some humor and laugh some. And um, yeah, because I mean, I used to just go to ACA meetings and I just like, oh shit, why do I want to be
2: here? You know, this is fucking miserable. <laughs> Yeah, I and see that's I think you're hitting on a a powerfully important point. Um, and I don't know that I have any solution for it. I think you've come up with a really good solution actually. Um we have to find a way to rediscipline our minds, you know? You can't just let your mind go down to darkness and you
3: mm-hmm. people
2: People have to have, that's, that's where AA and, um, a new design for living Mm -hmm. is, uh, tries to address that. I think, you know, you have to take steps to change the, who you are and how you think and, and how you feel. And just so that you don't just go down the rabbit hole all the time. And I think it's so empowering
0: when we're able to find, um, we're able to learn how to laugh at ourselves. Yeah. It's so important.
2: Yeah. It's, you know, and it, it, it follows the same physiological, um, equipment. It uses the same physiological equipment as, um, grieving. So it's, it's a, it's very cathartic. And I, I use laughter in my therapy all the time. We're always laughing in my groups.
0: It's so important. It,
2: yeah. It's everything. And people, it's built into our system for a reason, the same way tears are.
0: Have you noticed a difference in the people that you are training as far as the base knowledge that they're coming to you with? Like, Do you feel like that's improving, that people seem to have a better concept of complex trauma and relational trauma?
2: They know a lot more. I mean, we were figuring all this out in my generation. Mm -hmm. but your generation is uh you've been doing this kind of therapeutic thinking emotional literacy emotional intelligence building most of your lives i mean if you go you know to a coffee shop in new york city it sounds like you're in a therapist's office
3: Mm
2: -hmm. so that in the 50s we didn't talk about anything Mm
3: -hmm.
2: so i think that the admonition against opening up uh not that there, there are two things there's the admonition has lifted against opening up so people are freer to talk about feelings and so forth. The vice of trauma has not changed. The vice is, is uh, int- uh, intrapersonal. It's within the self. It's within the frozenness that um, Steve Porges talks about in polyvagal theory. That lives in the body.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So we, while we can open up better, it's another process to heal trauma. Does that make sense?
3: Mm-hmm.
0: When you were at Karen, were you focused a lot on trauma?
2: No, nobody talked about it even then. It was, 19, it was 1980 and um, 81. Were, were you there for a long time? No. Karen Foundation? Oh, you mean when I was working there? Yeah, when you worked there. Oh, yeah. when I worked there. Yes, yes. We talked about trauma. Sure, uh-huh. because it was in the 80s and Bessel's work started coming out throughout the eighties. So that's when I started incorporating. The first time I met Bessel, I, I said, you know, I've known him for a number of years because uh, we're senior fellows at the Meadows. But the uh-huh. first time I met him, I said, you you don't know me, but I know you because I've been integrating your work into psychodrama for 30 years or for 20 years or something like that at the point, I guess more like 20 when I'm in, but it, it uh, I just took what what Bessel said in his work and integrated into psychodrama because he was the first earliest person writing in my generation. You know, here, Crystal, there had been work previously, Janae, Crystal on trauma, but he was making it uh, pretty user-friendly for the mental health field. And- you know that
0: you were working at Karen when I got sent there. Oh, <laughs> Four days after my 14th birthday.
2: 14th birthday?
0: hmm I went to the adolescent unit. You was mean-
2: in,
0: Yeah, 2003. You were still there. I just looked on LinkedIn. Yeah, I was there. I got sent to Karen. I was 14. I was in oh. the eighth grade. You were already- mm-hmm. I got horribly scapegoated. I mean, I got horribly scapegoated.
2: Have you been in so- them? You got sober there? No,
0: I got sober at nineteen. So I was in and out, in and out. Uh, but you know yeah, what? That just, was when we used to get. I could smoke seven cigarettes a day. Do you remember that?
2: Yes. I remember yeah, it was amazing.
0: We could they, smoke seven cigarettes
2: a day. Know, we had
0: parental consent. It was amazing.
2: Yeah, the, there was this whole resurgence of getting people to understand tobacco was also a problem. Yeah. That, yeah, yeah. Oh was-
0: my god, that was the most trauma. It was such a horrible experience for me just because of my. Um, like separation anxiety issues with my mom. I mean, I I, I couldn't sleep over at a friend's house until like a year and a half before that. And so I got sent away, I got sent there and I just freaked out, I freaked out. You're not supposed to call your parents for like the first four days. And I freaked out so much that they let me call my parents the first night. Oh, it was really traumatizing. And then they I had the I boys know. and the girls separated. And then in the cafeteria, the boys and the girls they would pass notes in the peanut butter and jelly packets at the little table where the toaster was. You <laughs> let me... I, it out. <laughs> I was figuring it out. And then there was the t- the teacher. Do you remember her? Her name was, I think they called her Teach. We go to teach to school for a couple
2: hours a day, and um,
0: yeah, I was there. I
2: was well, there. It, when you get scapegoated, like I mean, if you became the family program problem, needed mm-hmm. treatment, it's a terrible, insidious thing that families collude in doing. And it's usually the parents who don't want to look at their own issues, right?
3: Mm.
2: Oh yeah, so, but it worked. My mom worked. stopped drinking, and my parents stopped fighting as much. That's how it works. It worked. That's- That's how family therapy goes, right? You get a new problem to focus on. You install the problem in somebody else and you get busy, uh, you know, pulling together and dealing with that problem. And then your problems go down, even get hidden again, or, or they get sort of a little bit worked out at somebody else's expense.
0: And I remember that song that they used to sing at the end of like the chapel,
2: which one remember it was like in the
0: circle of love do you remember (laughs) in the circle of i feel the unity do you remember that i I remember remember
2: there were a couple songs like that floating around what was that guy's name
0: who what was that guy's name the 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 pastor guy father bill yeah father bill yeah 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 oh my (laughs) god and then I remember the first time first weekend my parents came to visit me. So where like the adolescent unit was and like the girl the women's, like the girls, um kind of like the the um living room area, it had all these windows and so you could see the cars. The cars would kind of like drive up this hill. And I saw my parents' car coming and I just sprinted out of the place, out the door, into my parents' car, begging them to take me home and they didn't. So and they didn't. Uh, no, I had to yeah, stay. For th- uh, yeah. I had to stay for twenty eight okay. days. So, yeah. Well, <laughs> but you know what? I think think about how think about all those people that I was in there with, and how many of them are probably dead. Yeah, a lot of them. So, but at least I got to smoke those seven okay. cigarettes a day. I remember there was this girl from California. She was seventeen, and her pa- she was going to turn eighteen in a couple weeks, and her parents wouldn't let her smoke. And I remember she shaved her arms. I'll never forget.
2: <laughs> oh. shit <Should> we remember <laughs> how many do you mind to ask you how many programs you went to i went to i went to um
0: three inpatients one boarding school and probably like six out of
2: outpatients well, no wonder you're devoted to this subject yeah so well i mean i think you're on to um that's complicated trauma that's really complicated that's what they call complicated, complex PTSD. No kidding. I mean, and really I had co- no
0: clue. Yeah.
2: You know, I mean, that's a lot of, uh, but
0: it yeah. sped up my, it sped up my disease because it was like, I had to go to like greater lengths mm-hmm. to like get intoxicated. You know what I mean? Cause they were on me and um, it just sped things up for me.
2: So do you I think mean, if you had not been put in treatment at that young age, you might have uh, worked it through without treatment or you can't tell.
0: It's on both sides of my family so heavily. I don't really think I stood a chance. Yeah. You know? Your
2: parents were both,
0: mm-hmm.
2: both alcoholics? Both. Yeah. Both alcoholics who...
0: My dad didn't really become an alcoholic until I would say like later in life, but like, but it I mean, both, but heavily on both sides of the family, like grandparents, like I didn't stand a chance. Well
2: good
0: for you i wouldn't have any other way normal <laughs> people are boring <laughs> <laughs> We traumatized um, you're kidding I... yeah i like i like the, the the traumatized people um so okay so your books the workbook's gonna come back out and yep. everyone needs to get it a bunch of people already listening already have it so um it's amazing anything
2: else you want to plug well if you're a therapist out there um a lot, would, there's a
0: lot of therapists listening.
2: Okay, so uh, I have two books now, uh, Treating Adult Children of uh, Trauma, Relational mm-hmm. Trauma, and Sociometrics. If you go to rtr-sociometrics.com,
1: okay.
2: you'll find a bunch of films about this subject. You'll find out how you can get a certificate that's quite you know, user-friendly in this work. So RTR dash sociometrics.com. That's what I'm I want. I'll put it in the show notes. Oh, thank you. And I also am gonna start doing these 10 minute trainings that will just be how to do let roles. me know. Let me know. Okay. And I'll I'll let people know about them and I'll mention it. Thank you, thank you so much.
0: Thank you for everything. you thank seen. you. Seriously. You're amazing.
2: I feel so honored. I, I, I really love do. coming in and talking to you and I I, I'm you. admiring what you've got. We're doing Both. a baby. I'm almost about to hit 2 million downloads. I mean,
0: wow. Yeah, it's really great. You've really,
2: you know, you've really, uh, and you're very good at this. Oh, thank you. I'm just a shit show. I'm just chatting. Just well, chatting I, it up. <laughs> can't let you uh, off the hook on how precise you are how much you know when to let it go how much you know when to bring it back how good you are at asking the right questions how much you get appreciate it yeah i think there's a lot more than that shit show going on
0: yeah you know you know no this is all part of god's plan right i know it i know it that's how i feel extremely honored and grateful So, so
2: happy to be here
0: we'll have you back Thank you. Anytime. We will keep having you back. Sure. Okay. So so oh shit. My my phone's gonna my computer's about to die. Um, so we just stopped the recording and and then Tian just started giving me all these compliments and I'm like, why the fuck did you wait until we stopped the recording to do this? So, I was trying please. to act
2: professional, but what no, I No, want- we don't
0: do that yeah. here. We're just we're just hanging out here.
2: <laughs> you have gotten so good at this. You have grown leaps yeah. and bounds. You've refined your professional
3: mm-hmm. vision.
2: You've gotten what you wanted to do to work. You're spreading the word. You're good at what you do. You know how to ask, when to ask, and what to ask. You're terrific. I appreciate it. That means a lot coming from you. Oh, I'm I'm really impressed.
0: This is exciting. Okay, folks, that's I just need I just need everyone to hear that.